Hopefully you're there in your Bible or on your device, John chapter 14, beginning in verse 14. Jesus makes the incredible promise that in his absence, God the Father will send us a helper, God the Holy Spirit. The title of the message, You'll Get By With the Spirit's Help for My Friends. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we have your word open before us. We've spent some time participating in worship, or at least listening to the worship, Lord. It's, it's more than just a preparation. It's, it's something wonderful in and of itself, of course, because you are worthy of our praise. But it does prepare our heart, Lord, to hear from you. It, it clears our minds in a, in a way, Lord, and, and, and we want to hear from you between the soul and the spirit in that deep place that only you can minister. We come with needs and desires and wants and fears and dreams and everything else that we can imagine as human beings. We know that you were touched with many things, Lord, because you too were human as we are. Uh, and so as you relate to us this morning, Lord, I pray that the result would be a, a, a great rising up of our spirits to, uh, to serve you and to love you. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agree to it, amen. Phenomenal cosmic power. Itty bitty living space. That's the assessment of Disney's genie of his lamp in Aladdin. My generation had, I dream of genie. She lived in a bottle. They were the tiny houses before tiny houses became a thing. I don't really get tiny homes. You, you might as well just live in a trailer, right? It, bigger, it can go more places and, and stuff, but, but it's a craze. Of course, then again, I've become fascinated by container conversions. I wouldn't mind living in a container. You can add to it and follow container conversions on Pinterest and three hours later, you're still, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's just a thing. I'll get over it. It's probably not good for me. If you want tiny, buy a decommissioned submarine. Paint it yellow, of course. One of our Navy veterans was a submariner. He would fondly describe the mere 15 square feet each man had for his birthing. Go to mysubmarine.com, not now, but later, and you'll find decommissioned subs for sale. They have an ABS class sub they convert to a restaurant that people can, uh, so that can serve about 12 people at a time. And it's only gonna set you back about a million dollars. Wouldn't that be a cool retirement job? You, so I don't know where you would be, you know, you'd have, have the little ferry take your, your uh, party of 12 out to the sub, and then you go down, and they eat underwater and stuff, and then they come, I mean, you, you know, it's a high-end thing, obviously, you know, it costs a fortune, but I'm into it. Jesus told the 11 that he was going to heaven to prepare extravagant, luxurious, spacious, custom mansions for believers. While waiting for Jesus to come and take us home, he told the believers to expect a slightly more crowded housing arrangement. Verse 17, the spirit who dwells with you will be in you. Every disciple would have a roommate in the person of God, the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God the Holy Spirit lives in you permanently. And number two, God the Holy Spirit lives in you peaceably. Let's take a look at his permanence in verses uh, 15 through 21. 
We are casually discussing God himself, God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ living in us. I just think it's worth a moment to, to just uh, think about that, how incredible that is. Uh, not that we take it for granted or, you know, we never think about it, but it's an, is that not an incredible truth that the creator of the universe lives in you by his spirit? Uh, it, it's tremendous. It, if you really wrap your head around that, it changes everything. There are additional verses that speak of Christ or the spirit of Jesus or the spirit of Jesus Christ living in the believer. For instance, Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now this doesn't mean Jesus and the Holy Spirit live in you. God the Spirit lives in you on behalf of Jesus. And so let's pick up in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Here's a question. Can you do anything that has eternal value without the help of God the Holy Spirit? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> no, Charles Spurgeon didn't think so either. He said, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without wind, chariots without steeds, branches without sap, withered, like coals without fire, useless. Jesus told them to keep his commandments. And last week we saw that the one foundational commandment he gave them that night at supper was love one another as he had loved them. The command to love one another was not new, but doing it the way he did it was new. Impossible without the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Uh, and so we need to read it that way. Uh, you know, it isn't so much that he's demanding compliance with his commandments as he's anticipating that they will be able to keep his command once they are born again. Verse 16, and I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Jesus had been their helper for the previous three and a half years. He was leaving. He would send them another helper who was simultaneously just like him and better than him in certain ways. If I say hamburger, what is the first thing that pops into your head? For, yeah, for me, it's helper. Hamburger helper. I think there's a psychotic uh, chart, you know, that's on, that's on. But anyway, so hamburger is good, right? But helper takes it to the next level. People have a tendency to think that way about God, the Holy Spirit. We're the hamburger. He's the sometimes helper. He's there if we need him to spice things up. You've seen the Christian bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. You're letting the world know that you are your own pilot. And you'll let Jesus know if you ever need his help. Right? I mean, that's co-pilots don't do much flying, do they? They want to, but they don't really get much time in. So, hey, Lord, you're my co-pilot. It's like a flight simulator gone bad. Another false notion of his help has to do with his power. Christians see the Holy Spirit as a source of power to be tapped into when needed. In the Fast and Furious movie universe, the street racers are equipped with nitrous oxide. The driver flips the switch and then hang on. His lips are, you know, flying back on his face because they're going so fast. 
That's not how the Holy Spirit operates within us. He's not a switch that we flip on. Here's a question for you. Lots of questions this morning. What does God the Holy Spirit have in common with the Hotel California? Once he checks in, he never leaves. He abides with you forever. The permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit is unique to the church in the church age. Old Testament saints were saved by believing in God. They were not, however, born again. They were not baptized spiritually by the Holy Spirit into the body of Jesus Christ. And they did not have God the Holy Spirit as a permanent roommate. David said to God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51, 11. We sing that, right? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Not possible in the church age. It's okay to sing it. It's a scripture. We don't need to change it or anything like that. But recognize that it was, David prayed that because it was possible. He said, Lord, whatever I've done, please don't take your spirit away from me. It's impossible in the new age, but not in that age. God did take his spirit back from David's predecessor. We read of King Saul, the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. By the way, those who argue that the Holy Spirit's ministry was the same in the Old Testament as it is today usually don't distinguish between Israel, the church, and Gentiles. They say that Israel was the church in the old and the church is spiritual Israel in the new. The Bible always distinguishes between those three groups, Israel, the church, and Gentiles, and you will not ever understand Bible prophecy if you confuse God's dealings with these three people groups because he deals with each of them in unique ways. He gives each of them different promises. Uh, and so we are looking back on Israel and waiting for God to fulfill his unconditional promises to that nation, that they would have their land forever, that David would sit on his throne, and etc. And then there's a whole set of promises for the church, and then there's God's plan for the Gentiles. Keep those uh, you know, separate. And you'll, uh, you know, and maybe some of your friends who hammer you on different prophecies, you ask them, say, hey, do you think Israel and the church are the same thing? And if they say they are, now you know why they're so confused. When you believe Jesus and were born again, God the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you forever. He doesn't check out, not ever. You can grieve him, you can quench him, you cannot evict him. Verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him, or excuse me, it sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Jesus earlier said he was the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The spirit shows you Jesus' truth in a world filled with lies about him. The non-believer rejects Bible truth. Put it this way. A person who rejects clear, unequivocal biblical truth in favor of the devil's lies does not have the spirit. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I don't know. It's just, you know, your brain works in so many weird ways. And uh, every time I see the word orphan, I think of Popeye. Uh, remember Popeye the sailor man? He calls them orphinks. And uh, I just... Uh, probably a slur now and I probably need to resign but it's just what I remember <laughs> verse 18 I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you perhaps one or more of the eleven were thinking I thought I was a child of God 
but it seems I am to be orphaned, not possible. Christians express feelings of abandonment, especially in what seems the darkest times, not possible. But Gene, I've been seeking God and he's silent, is not. You have the completed Bible through which he speaks to you. With God, the Holy Spirit in your heart, he still speaks to you. He hasn't abandoned you, but you might have to wait for his wisdom. You might have to seek it. You might have to dig it out. You might have to mine for it, we might say. But it's there, his, his message to you. The Bible, for instance, repeatedly encourages us to fear not. It supposes you will be in fearful circumstances, right? And then you will deal with that. You will seek the Lord. Verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also live. Jesus would return to heaven. Unbelievers don't see him again until the second coming, after the seven-year great tribulation. The 11, along with lots of other believers, would see him in his resurrection body for some 40 days after he rose. Today, we see the Lord by faith, even in his absence on account of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Verse 20, at that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. On the upcoming day of Pentecost, Jesus would give them the promised Holy Spirit. God the Father is spirit, so is God the Holy Spirit. I cannot fully comprehend life among spirit beings, but Jesus made it sound really great. He said we will have the assurance that he and his Father are one. We will be in him. Jesus will be in us by the person of the Holy Spirit, and all of that is forever. And so forever we will partake of eternal life, the life of God, the life of the Spirit, the life of Jesus Christ. And again, why explain that any further than that? Uh, it's the old looking at a flower situation. Do you really know how, uh, need to know about turgor pressure and all the ways that a flower works? Does it, does it really help? I mean, maybe scientific, but, you know, no, of course not. In fact, it could ruin it. And so I, there's a spiritual realm, and God has invited me into it, and I'm going to live there in his presence and in his glory. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 31 says something similar. It says, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Jesus loved and obeyed as our example. He didn't need to prove he loved the Father by obeying him. Obedience and love just go together. And so, you know, it wasn't a throwdown. You know, it wasn't say, hey, prove that you love me. It, 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 they go together. And the same is true with us. Obedience is our proper response to God's love. Obedience and love go together. The more I know about the Lord, the more I want to obey him. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We can stupidly choose to disobey God. Does that mean we no longer love God? Well, let me ask it this way. Each time you sin, do you no longer love God? It's true we tend to hurt those we love. And it's true of God. We tend to hurt him. It happens on a cosmic scale. Disobedience hurts the spirit living within us, but it doesn't mean we no longer love God. You're going to be immersed in the love of God for you, 
The spiritual response to that is to love him and keep his commandments. Love reciprocates. To paraphrase Barney, I love you, you love me. We're all in God's family. I saw a meme that said the only thing permanent in this life is that everything is temporary. Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher, said there is nothing permanent except change. Korg explained to Thor, nothing makes sense here, man. The only thing that does make sense is that nothing makes sense. In the midst of that kind of despair and sarcasm, God says you are permanently indwelled by God the Holy Spirit and on your way to eternity forever. Verses 22 through 31, God the Holy Spirit lives in you peaceably. Whether it's the Manchurian candidate or the winter soldier, we see the effects of programming. We are programmed by the ruler of this world. GotQuestions.org says Satan is the major influence on the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people. His influence also encompasses the world's philosophies, education, and commerce. The thoughts, ideas, speculations, the false religions of the world are under his control and have sprung from his lies and deceptions. The Bible describes Satan as a murderer and a liar. He has invented religions and philosophies that compete with salvation offered by God. He breaks down boundaries God has lovingly set for his creatures, convincing people that they are making progress when, in fact, they are reverting to base fleshly lusts. The devil always comes along and says, what has God said? Has he said this? That's just to keep you down. You, you need to do this, and it will fulfill you. And, and so we see that, we see that today in um, you know, the things that are happening with regards to uh, biblical marriage and sex and gender and all of that. Uh, people are uh, falling for the devil's lies and deceptions, things that just a few years ago would seem absurd and ridiculous because they are absurd and ridiculous, are being accepted now, and more than accepted, they're being taught and forced on individuals. A saved person finds him or herself in a struggle with their unredeemed flesh and the devil's programming. God the Holy Spirit overrides that programming. And so verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Whatever Thomas or Judas asked, Jesus keeps returning to his revelation of the Spirit's indwelling. Our hearts become God's home. Obedience is thus made possible by the Spirit, and when we choose to obey, we overcome the world's programming. And so uh, Judas asked this question, and Jesus says, the answer is coming. It's coming on the day of Pentecost when you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I can't really answer it until you understand spiritual things better. And you want a, you know, a particular kind of answer, but the answer is going to be more, uh, more broad than you're thinking. It's going to have to do with the transformation of the human heart. These things I've spoken to you while present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The eleven constantly struggle to understand the sayings of Jesus. 
Now they were told that when the helper came, he would enable them to recall and understand what Jesus taught. They couldn't, not fully, until then. The Father sending the Spirit in Jesus' name is another way of saying the Father will send him in response to Jesus' request. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Holy Spirit is in your heart, and he is the peace that Jesus leaves with us. He's the peace. We have him in our hearts. Thomas Watson writes, If God be our God, he will give us peace in trouble. When there is a storm without, he will make peace within. The world can create trouble in peace, but God can create peace in trouble. You can always be peaceful in the eye of the storm. Uh, people talk, you know, we use storms as analogies of, of terrible troubles in our lives. Find the eye of the storm with Jesus' help, and you will be comfortable there. C.S. Lewis writes, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. There is no peace, no happiness, no joy, nothing really lasting until you know God as your Savior. Peace is not the absence of trouble, someone said, but the presence of Jesus. The peace of God is his indwelling, or the indwelling is his peace. Verse 28, you've heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. The revelation that the Lord will return for us ought to be enough to replace trouble and fear with peace. The eleven, however, remain steadfast in trouble and fear. Jesus added that his returning to the Father was good for them. Because the Father is greater Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of course, are equal. They're one. The Father is greater with regards to the plan of salvation because he sent the Son who voluntarily obeyed him. And then the Son sends the Spirit. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in our salvation, and they all have their part to play. One pastor asked, would you rather have Jesus beside you or the Spirit inside you? And the answer, of course, is the latter. You want the Spirit inside you. He is the Spirit of Jesus, and um, he empowers and enables you in all things. And now, verse 29, I've told you that before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. The Lord has told us about what is coming before it comes, so that we will remain at peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's John 16, 33. Not talking about the great tribulation, talking about trouble. Christians will have trouble while they're in the world. That's uh, just the way it is. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, is that you? Does that describe you? Would you say, oh, I want to live godly in Christ Jesus? 2 Timothy 3.12 says, then you'll suffer persecution. You need to know this is coming. 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning a fiery trial which tries you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory in Christ rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. 
Realistic expectations go far in helping us remain at peace. Uh, you know, I, people get accused of being negative or depressed or discouraged or, you know, Eeyore-ish or whatever and stuff. Uh, but uh, it's not that you have to always expect the worst. That, that's not it at all. But you should have realistic expectations uh, about what it's like to live in this world. And uh, it's sometimes not very pleasant. And so it shouldn't, you shouldn't be looking for something terrible to happen, but you shouldn't be overwhelmed when it does. Then verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Satan was coming uh, to do his worst against Jesus. No matter that the devil might try, or what the devil might try, Jesus was spotless. He was blameless. He was unimpeachable. He was in charge of the events that were about to transpire. But that the world may know me, verse 31, that I love the Father and the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let's go from here. This was Jesus' assessment of the cross. Dying on the cross as an act of obedience would show the world the Father's love. Arise, let's go from here. Jesus just said that the ruler of this world was coming, and perhaps by this he was saying, let's go and get ready to meet him. That's pretty good advice for believers. As Jesus went to the cross, so we take up our crosses daily and follow him and be ready to meet our defeated enemies and not be stumbled by the trouble they seek to cause. It's okay to want more of the Holy Spirit, to ask to be filled with the Spirit, for him to come upon you, just so you understand that he is a person and not a power. He's not the nitrous oxide you need to get to the finish line. Since he is a person, he has already come upon you and he already fills you. We like to see before and after pics, right? That's a, a famous thing. Uh, what did this person look like before, especially with plastic surgery on celebrities? I mean, admit it, it's a guilty pleasure that you have. You, you just have, and you think, oh my goodness, what did that person do to themselves, you know? The big Botox and the little look, they used to be beautiful, now they look like a monster and they can't really move their face. Hi, how are you? Uh, it's like they're ventriloquists or something, you know? And so one of the best ways to search our hearts about the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, rather than to make lists and to you know, talk to people, whatever else we might do, is to see before and after of the 11. And especially Peter, let's dwell on him for a minute. Before the Lord was crucified, the apostle Peter denied him, we read in the Gospel of Luke, a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. But he denied it saying, woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. So that's Peter on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, denying him three times. After God the Holy Spirit came to abide forever, Peter spontaneously addressed several thousand Jews in the temple. Do you think he had taken a Dale Carnegie course in public speaking? People always say, they say, oh, my greatest fear is having to speak in public. 
And so the Holy Spirit was given to these guys and some people in the, you know, out of the thousands that were gathered around there started to say, oh, they're, they're a bunch of drunks. And Peter pops up and he addresses them. And he said, one of the things he says in his address, therefore let all the house of Israel, you, know assuredly that God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Oh, man. Peter just said to this group, you killed the Lord of glory. You killed the Messiah. A servant girl, he says, I, I, I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're talking about. And then he tells thousands of Jews in the temple, you killed the Christ. If you've never experienced that kind of transformation, I'm not talking about some huge ministry or some huge opportunity, but that kind of transformation. Maybe you're not born again. What would you say if I asked you to give your testimony, for example? I do this a lot when uh, you know, couples want to get married and we don't know one of the parties. Uh, you know, we have them come in and, and we always get around to, so you know, I know, you know Jane Doe, but I don't know you, John. Uh, how, how did you come to know the Lord? Uh, grew up in church. Okay, uh, what does that mean? Uh, we went to church on Easter and on Sunday, or on, uh, you know, Christmas, and my parents were religious, and, you know, and, and so pretty soon I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at this, you know, Jane and thinking, what are you thinking, please, you know? You can't marry this guy, he's not even a believer. Then we get into phase two where, well, he's better than a believer. Anyway, it's crazy stuff out there. And so, you know, most people, if you say, hey, tell me your testimony of Jesus Christ. Wow, okay, how much time do you have? Because I'm pretty excited about knowing Jesus. Most of us have a testimony of being born again. There are things, lots of things, that can quench our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Churches often emphasize self-effort as equal or more important than the Spirit. It prompted the Apostle Paul to confront believers in the region of Galatia, saying, Are you guys so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? If you listen closely, even to me, especially to me, rather, and uh, you know, a lot of times messages, though they're accurate, they're burdensome. They, they, it's like, okay, you began with the Spirit and in grace, now you need to do these many things in order to maintain that and, and keep doing that. And God is looking for you to obey before he'll give you more of you know, himself and all of that. And so you know, we, that's not it at all. You, be, you began in the Spirit, you're continuing in the Spirit. Jesus wrote to believers in the church at Ephesus and revealed you have left your first love. And so that's something that Christians do. They, they don't fall out of love. They, it's not that they, if you'd ask them, they say, oh, of course we love God. But, you know, they weren't acting like they loved God. They weren't, re they weren't loving him in the way that uh, he needed to and wanted to be loved. Pastors and teachers tend to gravitate toward a conservative cessation approach to God, the Holy Spirit's indwelling. It's the nature of the beast that, uh, uh, you know, either pastors go to seminaries or they, if they're, you know, compensate for it by having huge libraries, 99.9% uh, .9 of the books are written by conservative scholars uh, who are cessationists. They don't believe in certain gifts of the Spirit, and they basically tone down the Spirit altogether. You might say that they believe in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Bible, uh, because they, and there's nothing wrong with the Bible but there's very little talk about the Spirit of God. And they reduce the Spirit to a kind of teacher that tells you what to do and then expects you to do it on your own. 
Ask the Lord what is going on between you and he in terms of his transformation of your life. Has your life ever been transformed the way Peter's was? And if it was, how's it today?